We're in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we come there, I just want to read the last little bit of chapter 1 starting at verse 22. So chapter 1 verse 22 says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, to the to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers, the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. The thoughts of chapter one kind of wrap up with, with this, with Peter saying, look, we, we should love one another earnestly. In, in the sight of all that God has done for us in his work of salvation to save us, uh, we should have a pure heart towards one another. Sincerely and sincerely, uh, genuinely love one another. We've been born again. We're part of the same family. Now, just like in physical conception that takes a man and a woman, there's two parts, two parents. So spiritual birth is the same. There's two parts, the word of God and the spirit of God. And we are born again as those things work in our hearts and lives. Uh, Peter says we're, we're born of the imperishable seed of the word of God. Whereas physical seed is perishable. The word of God is imperishable. And so Peter is about to call us to continue to grow in, in our knowledge of the word of God. And so he says this in verse one of chapter two. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I was thinking of Phil and Larissa this week, you know. Uh, parents, you remember those, those long nights. Uh, especially I remember them with our first child, Jonah. When, you know, that newborn baby would crave and hunger milk in the middle of the night. And begin to cry out. And, uh. You know, it really messes with your schedule as an adult. You know, we don't get up in the middle of the night to drink milk, but babies certainly do. And they begin to cry now. You know, as a man, there's not a lot I can do most nights. And so, sorry ladies, but the fact is, is that as we had more kids, I learned to roll over as Lisa got up. (laughs) Sorry, honey. And, you know, I thought, well, at least one of us can get some sleep. But no, (laughs) that's awful, right? Come on, it's true. I'm just speaking on behalf of all the men in the room. Amen. You know, babies, they struggle with differentiating between the day and the night. You know, they feel the hunger and the crying comes on and they let it wail because they crave milk. Now, Peter says that in the kingdom of God, when you're in the family of God, you should crave milk just like that. Just like a newborn baby. Crave that. See, in the kingdom of God, the the milk is the word of God. And you never graduate beyond, you know, like babies grow to solid food and all this. And there is solid food and, and meat and manna that were given from the word of God. But you never graduate from your need for the milk of the word. And so you need to develop your craving. Crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. 
You know, I've, I've never told this story publicly, but um, I've told it lots of times in home group or in a one-on-one discipleship kind of conversation or context. But when I was totally new here at CTK, and I'm cutting my teeth on the pulpit, and I'm getting to know you guys, and you're getting to know me, and it's this big growth curve almost six years ago. Um, and you're getting used to the way that I teach the Word of God verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and it was something kind of new that we were growing into as a church. Um, one of the things that we do every week is I encourage you, grab a Bible from around the edges of the room. Take, take the Scripture, and we'll, we're just going to walk through it. And so, uh, you know, it was a typical Sunday morning. I was three or four months in here at the church, and I did my grab your Bible, come. We, I prayed, and I opened my eyes, and I looked out across the room, and something caught my eye. It just kind of happens once in a while. Usually it's someone snoring or sleeping. Or... But what, what, what caught my eye was that there was not a Bible left around the edge of the room. All these, all these counters where we put the, there was, they were all gone that particular Sunday morning. And God just pricked my heart for a moment as I was about to to share the message. And he said, see, there's a craving for the word of God. And it was like this moment that just I had with the Lord standing right here. That was like this great encouraging thing that God did for me in the midst of the early days here at CTK. I tell you that because... Believers need to crave the word. We should never grow out of our need for the milk of the word. Because Peter says it's by the milk of the word that you grow up into salvation. You know, think again about a newborn. You never have to command your newborn to grow. Growth is the natural result of receiving milk. Babies need nothing else. The milk supplied by mama has all the nourishment and nutrients and vitamins that 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 baby needs to be healthy and to grow. And for us Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, those who have been born into the family of God, born into the kingdom of God, this is our milk right here. This is it. If you want to grow in Christ, then you need personal daily intake of the word of God. You know, it's great to come here on Sunday. And if this is all you get of the word of God, then all week, then fine, praise God. But I encourage you, you need a daily time where you stop and you pick up the word and you spend time with Jesus. You know, maybe just a chapter a day, pick a book, the gospel of John and just start one chapter a day. I'm going to read through and begin to open your heart to Jesus and just see what he does as you get milk every day. You'll just begin to grow spirit. You can't help it. You just begin to grow spiritually. Really, you know, the the word of God is that powerful. If you, if you can like, look around the room here this morning. Uh, Here we got people from different cultural backgrounds, you know, different uh, political preferences, different economic situations, uh, different hobbies, different interests. Every demographics kind of represented here. But we have gathered together today to worship Jesus Christ, to gather around the word of God and to be taught by the Lord and by his word so that we can grow. That is the unifying power and the work of God's word as it touches the heart. There's a craving to be part of the family of God. In fact, it's for all those above reasons that Peter says that in verse, in verse one, he says, put away malice. 
and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put it away. That, that, that means cast it aside. It's like, I think, a dirty laundry, you know. Throw it into the basket. Just change it like a set of dirty clothes that need to be put away. Put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Augustine said this, and I really like this definition. He said this, malice delights to hurt another. Envy pines at another's good. Deceit imparts duplicity to the heart. Hypocrisy imparts duplicity to the tongue. Slander wounds the character of another. You think about deceit. Deceit is just that ability to, to cover the true feelings of your heart. Peter says it's time to put that stuff away. Put it away. Toss it out like a change of clothes. You know, Jesus said this. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And so that's the call of, of 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is, you know, our pure spiritual mouth. This is of the organic variety, you know. You sunshine coasters. This is of the organic variety. And I, you know, I think about this and I wonder, well, how do you develop a craving for the word? And Peter tells us, you have to taste it. You actually have to taste it. And I can't tell you how many times with my own kids, we've sat around the dinner table and there's some item on, the, on their plate and it's dad's job to say, eat that. Your mom made that. Eat it. And, uh, you know, how many times do our children say, well, I don't like it. And I say, well, actually, I've been watching. You haven't tasted it. So how do you know you don't like it? You haven't even tasted it. And then, you know, time and time again, what often happens with kids is they taste it. And they say, well, that's, that's not so bad. They begin to acquire a taste for it. I, I, the latest was just the other night. You know, I love this time of year. We've been firing up the barbecue quite a bit. We were having burgers. And so, you know, I took a bunch of onions and chopped them up and butter and salt and pepper and sauteed them. And, oh, just awesome. And the kids wouldn't have any onions on their, on their burgers. And I said, man. If you have onions, it's like taking your burger from here to here. <laughs> and so I offered the kids some onions. No takers. I said, I'm telling you the truth. I'm your dad. I'm telling you, man. I, I'm like, honestly, I'm telling you the truth. Look, I'll even eat a fork ball. <laughs> They're good. So uh, Jonah says, okay, I'll try one. I picked one of those good ones. You know, it's kind of blackened on one side and all greasy. And he popped it in his mouth. He said, hey, that's pretty good. You know. The scripture says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David said, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You know, once in a while I come home from supper for supper and I'm starving. This happens to guys and we ruin our dinner. We go to the fridge, start snacking, start getting in. For me, it's the nachos and some salsa. And... You know, 20 minutes later, I sit down and Lisa spent a bunch of time preparing dinner and all of a sudden I have no appetite to eat that which she has prepared. I spoiled my dinner because I was snacking on other things. And you know, lots of Christians kind of do that. It's like we, we learn to feed on other things and then when it's time to eat from what God has for us, we don't have an appetite for it. And you need to taste and see that the Lord is good 
But you also need to lay aside other junk food that maybe you've been eating from. The nachos, whatever it is. That's what Peter says that he starts here. He says, put it away. Malice, deceit, slander, envy. Put that away and taste and see that the Lord is good. Crave the milk of the word. You know, I encourage you to start your day in the word. Before you start feeding your life on other things, man, start your morning in the word of God. He says this in verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God's a builder. Did you know that? God's a builder. You know, those of you who are in the construction industry and work with your hands, take pride in that. God is a builder. He's building for himself a house, a temple. But Peter tells us something really cool about the building that God is constructing. That he's using people. He's using you and I. We're like living stones that he is fashioning and shaping his temple, his church, and he is building something. You know, that's why there's just this, this great air that we can have when we begin to think of the church as a physical building. This is not a church. This, this building is not the church. This is a nightclub. It's about the coolest church out there to gather in. But I said it. See, I said it right there. This is, this is not a church. It's a nightclub because we are the church. The church got here when you walked in. You are the church. Living stones that have come to the living stone, Jesus Christ. And the scripture tells us that he is the cornerstone upon which we are built. You know, this week in my quiet time, I've been reading in Deuteronomy and sometimes... Deuteronomy like starts out awesome, man. The first 11 chapters or so is just like, oh, it's so good. Then it gets tough. But I was in chapter seven this week and there Moses is recounting to the people how God had chosen them. That it wasn't because they were righteous or anything. It was just because God chose them and he set his love upon them and they were his people. And just as God chose Israel to be a nation and he set them apart special amongst the nations of the world. So God has chosen you and you are a precious people in the sight of God. Chosen to be his church. Just as Israel had a priesthood, you have been chosen to be priests in the kingdom of God. You actually are, the scripture says, a kingdom of priests. That means this, you know, where is the Israelites, only a select group could be chosen as priests. You know, only the Levites could serve in the temple, but even only amongst the Levites, there was a select group, the descendants of Aaron that could serve as priests. And all the nation of Israel had access to God through those priests. They went to the priest and that's where their access to God was. But now in Christ, we have been made a kingdom of priests. You don't need to go through a select man. You yourself go to Jesus Christ. I, 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 I got to tell you that if you come to this church and you consider me your priest, you're in trouble. I'm not your priest. If you try to access God via me, you find yourself outside the kingdom. 
You're a priest. You go to Jesus Christ and you present your life to him. Be your own priest before God. Be your own priest. And see, we can offer ourselves to God. Paul said this in Romans chapter 12. He said, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Get up, put your life up on the altar and offer yourself to God. In Hebrews, it said that we offer up a sacrifice of praise. That's our, we brought a sacrifice to the house, to this building. The church offered to the Lord a sacrifice this morning as we praised him. Hebrews, it says that it's a sacrifice to acknowledge his name, that the the fruit of the lips that confess his name. See, when you acknowledge the name of Jesus and you praise God, God considers that acceptable because you're a priest. That is the work of a priest to acknowledge God and to praise his name. And so like living stones, we're being fashioned into this building, into this temple, being made into the church. You know, there's something cool about the building of the temple in the Old Testament. You know that the Old Testament tells us that when the temple was being built and Solomon had commissioned everything and it was all happening, he instructed his builders that on the actual physical building site of the temple that there was to be no sound of any tools. No hammer, no sound of the chisel, no cutting of the stone, no chipping of the stone on the building site. All of the work of fashioning the stones for the temple was to be done in the quarry a distance away. And then those stones were to be transported to the temple site, building site, and fit into their spot in absolute silence. Now we are stones being built into a temple. This life is kind of like the quarry. Maybe you got hammered this week. I hope not. <laughs> that came out wrong. <laughs> Maybe you felt like life hammered you this week. Maybe you feel like life chipped away and chiseled you and cut you. But this is the quarry. And you are being fashioned into something that God is working into his temple. You know, when you go to the Temple Mount, if, if you come with us in October, it's awesome. You go to the, te- it's my, I think it's probably my favorite place to go. The Temple Mount. You would not believe the size of the stones. I mean, the temple's not there, but the mount is still. They're huge. It's like hard to, disc- like, I'm not kidding you from that door to that wall, four to six feet high, four to six. They're unbelievable. Every stone dressed in, tri- they, they got nice outlines and they're all fashioned with detail. And they're fit so tightly together, even now, thousand, thousands of years later, you can't slip a piece of paper between the stones. They say that the large, I, I, don't, I couldn't remember the exact stat. I was asking Lisa, I'm like, do you remember what the stat was? But they say the largest stone in the Egyptian pyramids is just like a small, a small percentage size of what is in the Temple Mount. Like, 20 per, like the biggest stone is like 20% of a normal stone on the Temple Mount. It is unreal. And see, God is dressing you. 
He's trimming you. He's perfecting you for a perfect fit in his temple. And so the next time somebody calls you a blockhead, consider it an open door to witness. <laughs> That's right, I'm a blockhead. And Jesus is doing a great work. You know, they'll think you're nuts. Anyways. Verse 6 is this. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. See, Christ is the crucified rock. To the, to the church, Jesus is to us the foundation and cornerstone. To the Jews at his first coming, Jesus was a stumbling stone. The scripture tells us in Zechariah that at his second coming to Israel, he will become the headstone. And to the governments of this world, he will become the stone that crushes them and breaks them to pieces. You know, there's a great story. I've read it a number of times in my studies before, and I came across it again this week. And I, it's a traditional story. I don't know if it's true, but to me, it rings true. I want to tell it to you because according to tradition, during the building of Solomon's temple, everything went smooth and was going fine and going well until they went to place the cornerstone. Then they couldn't locate it. The builders looked all over the mount, could not locate the cornerstone. And so they sent message to the quarry and they said, send the cornerstone. We're ready for the cornerstone. And the quarry sent a message back to the builders and they said, we sent the cornerstone a long time ago. It's not here. And so the search was on. And they began to look for this cornerstone and, and everyone was confused until someone remembered that the quarry had sent a stone and no one could figure out exactly what it was for. And so not knowing what to do with the stone and unable to determine its location, they rolled it off the temple mount down into the Kidron Valley. No one knew what else to do with it. You know, Kidron Valley is on that east side of the temple mount where the blood would flow. It's an incredible picture. That's why I think it's probably a true story as much as it's just a traditional story. They had to go down and retrieve the stone and build it into its place. It's kind of like our lives. You know, there can be stuff happening in your life that you can't figure out. Where does this fit? How does this work, God? What are you doing? Where you question God and you might say, God, is this really of your design? Because I don't understand how this fits into my life. And you know, this morning I would encourage you to, you know, maybe God is using that person or that relationship or that thing or that circumstance or that situation or whatever it is that you might be ready to throw in the towel or roll down into the valley or get rid of. Maybe, just maybe, God is using that to trim and to cut and to shape you and he's going to fit it into your life in some way that you never saw coming. What a shame if we roll those things down the hill. See, scripture tells us that Jesus is the rejected cornerstone. 
The rejection of the cornerstone is a biblical prophecy or an illusion that's in a number of places in the Old Testament. Psalm 118, Isaiah 28, Acts chapter 4 talks about it. In the scripture, we see Jesus as the cornerstone in Psalm 118. The stumbling stone in Isaiah 8. We see him as the foundation stone in Isaiah 28. And the supernatural stone cut out with hands, not from men in Daniel chapter 2. 1 Corinthians tells us that he is the rock that was split and gave water to Israel in the desert, in the wilderness. See, it's a privilege to be part of God's people, to be fashioned into what he is building with his hands. God is shaping you and he's at work. Look at what it says in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, I was thinking about this. I, you know when I always get a, a good laugh is when you... When you read stuff or see stuff on TV where people are doing like these past life regression things. Hey, what was I before? And these charlatans that they're working with always say, oh yeah, well there's royalty here. Oh yes, you're from a kingly line. Oh yes, oh there's money and wealth and your family had all this pride. And you know, it's just, there's always these great, you know, nobody ever comes from humble backgrounds. There's always some greatness in the back. I tease a certain family member, it's on my wife's side, who likes to say something great about their history. I say, oh man, yeah, right. I love to just tease them. So far removed that it's meaningless. See, we'd all love to have something great from our story in the past, but let me tell you something. You have something better than the past. You have the present and you have the future. And the scripture says you are royalty. You are royalty. Forget the past. You're royalty and you have royalty in your future. How does that feel? Feels pretty good, eh? Try that on. Try that on. You're royalty. See, the offices of royalty and the offices of the priesthood, in any past, you look at the nation of Israel, it's something that was tightly guarded. It was a privilege. It, it, it was given to you by your a birthright. A chosen priesthood, having a chosen priesthood was something that was totally exclusive to the nation of Israel, exclusive to the tribe of Levi, and exclusive to Aaron's line. But now we are royalty, and we are chosen priests, and it is the privilege of every Christian that to us, Jesus is our great high priest, and to him we come. We praise him. We give glory to his name. See, you are God's special people. I like how it says it in, in the King James Version. It says this, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You can turn to the person next to you and say, you're peculiar. <laughs> and you know what? You can respond and say, thank you. <laughs> you can. Because that's a special word in the scripture. It means this. You are God's possession. 
You're special. You belong to him. He's put his hand upon you. See, God has chosen you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you from darkness into light. Well, do you remember the darkness you were in before Jesus Christ? Oh, wasn't the light so bright when he brought you into relationship with him? You have been called a peculiar, special people. You set apart. Remember, remember from last week, chapter one. In the time of your exit, you are on exit. You're a sojourner, an alien traveling through on your way to a heavenly city. A peculiar people set apart to the kingdom of God. And you're to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you from darkness to light. We saw that, like I said, from Peter last week, but he's going to go on here to help us understand why sometimes we feel like, you know, as Christians, sometimes we feel like we don't fit in amongst the culture. Sometimes we feel sort of lost in the system of the world. Well, look what he says in verse 11. Beloved, those loved by God, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. See, again, the world is not your home. You know, earlier he said, put this off. Romans chapter uh, 13 verse 11 tells us there's something we need to put on. Yes, we put off malice and we put off, off deceit and we put off envy and slander and these things. But there's something we're to put on. Paul said this, Romans chapter 13, 11, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Don't satisfy its desires. See, the passions of your flesh are waging war against your soul. That's what Peter says here. They're seeking to destroy that which God is doing. And you have to be careful. You and I are vulnerable. And sin has a physical price tag, death. The wages of sin is death. But for, for us who have redeemed and been redeemed and purchased by Christ, you know, we have eternal life, but there is still a price tag when we give in to the passions of the flesh. Because a death happens to the inner man. There's, a, there's something that dies in our spirit when we, we give ourselves over to the passions of the flesh. And you will not escape. And so, Peter's challenge to us, his call is that, that you abstain from the passions of the flesh. They're waging war against you. They want to kill that which God's spirit is doing in you. And the key to abstaining from the passions of the flesh is to maintain the mindset of an exile, of a sojourner, of a pilgrim, of an alien. Remind yourself, I'm passing through and put on Christ. I'm passing, I'm setting my sight on the finish line. I'm passing through and put on Christ Jesus. He says this in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. You know, Lisa and I were um, invited to be part of something this week. And I, I was thrilled because we've got just different spots in this community where we're just, we're, we're just trying to build relationships with people. We want to be salt and want to be light and getting invited into some different circles. And it's kind of cool. It's a lot of fun. And, and so we get an invitation and we had to wrestle through. Oh, okay, man. Is this, 
what does participation here mean for us? We're Christians. We want, we're, we're seeking to be honorable. Uh, we want to represent Christ. How can we go into it? Uh, you know what? Let's abstain this time. We held back. But I'm trusting God will honor that because we were seeking to honor that in those relationships. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that the, the, the Gentiles there is referencing those who are not believers so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, live in such a way that although this world bad mouths you, that time and your conduct will prove to those who badmouth you that your faith in Christ is something very real. See, it's been said your life is the only Bible that some people may ever read. And the promise seems to be that our conduct, our conduct might be able to win some over. That their hearts would at least be open to maybe receive the word of Christ as they observe us. He says this in verse 13. He's going to start to talk about submission. It's interesting stuff. Um, he's going to talk about submission to government, submission in the workplace. Next week, he's going to talk about it in marriage. And we're going to kind of hunker down there and spend a bit of time yapping about marriage. I encourage you to come next Sunday. But verse 13 says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. When we come to Jesus Christ, we are called to show proper submission to government and to authority. Submit to the government. Now, you can argue. You can argue on this. You could go all sorts of different ways. You know, some might argue, argue that there is no real government except for the kingdom of God. And there is no real authorities except for King Jesus. But the scripture tells us in many places that it's God who raises up leaders. He raises one up here and he takes another down here. God has given governments authority. Now, if the government calls you to do something in contradiction to God's law, then, then we're commanded to obey God rather than men. You know, human government told Peter, stop preaching the gospel. Stop preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And Peter said, hold on, man. You decide, what do you think? Should I obey you or should I obey God? I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are kind of an interesting uh, story. You, you remember them? They were, they were commanded that they had to eat a certain diet. And it was against their religious traditions and what the scripture commanded Old Testament Jews to practice. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did something cool. They, uh, that turned out to be a blessing and turned out to be God's favor. They went and they negotiated and they said, would you give us a chance? Could we try this out? Da, 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 da. And sure enough, God poured out his grace upon them and they were given favor with the government and they didn't have to follow through with what they were instructed. See, I guess I would say this, whatever we think about government, we are called to live in submission to it. 
to the established authorities. In fact, these verses give us some direction as to why we have government at all. And it says here, Peter says, government is sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so he said, for the Lord's sake, be submissive. Not for your sake, for God's sake. For the purposes of the kingdom of God, be submissive. And when God's people honor the law of the land, God is glorified. And when others disobey the law of the land and are punished for it, God is glorified. Then the government is doing its job. Government is supposed to work for our good. Government is supposed to keep a check on society. Now, when a government fails to provide justice, when a king fails to provide equity, then it's failing and it's God ordained calling. There's nothing worse as we know than a government that fails to punish criminals. There's nothing worse than a government that rewards evildoers. But either way, Peter says, we are subject to God's established authorities. And so God help us honor those he's put in authority over us. In fact, verse 17, Peter says this, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Remember, this he's writing in the midst of a culture that's six million slaves in it, the Roman Empire. Christians terribly persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. All sorts of rumors and things floating around Christians as cultures trying to figure out who they are and what they're about. Terribly persecuted. And yet Peter says, honor the emperor. In fact, four directives in that one verse. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And I would say this, the key one is the third one. Fear God. Fear God. See, when we live with a healthy fear of God, then we do the other directives. And when they're not happening, when those other things are not happening in my life, that just points to the fact that there's actually not a healthy fear of God in my life. That it's not operating. I would say that plain and simple. That if there's a healthy fear of God, I will honor everyone. I will love the brotherhood. I will honor the emperor. It says this in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing. When mindful of God. See, there's where our thoughts are set again. For the Lord's sake. When we're mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, thank goodness that we don't live in a culture, except with credit cards, <laughs> MasterCard. I like that one. That's a, that's a pretty interesting play on words. Master card. That implies that I'm a slave. You know, sometimes job feels like a slavery though, doesn't it? Especially, well, I guess it depends on the employer. You know, not only are we called to be submissive to government, but we're, we're called to be submissive to our employers. Which has a bad and good side to it. 
You know, if they look after you, if they compensate you fairly, if they show some flexibility, submission comes kind of easy. But when you have an unjust employer, have you ever had one of those? I think all of us have had experiences of unjust employers. Rip you off your holiday pay. Wages aren't competitive. You don't get paid for stats. Doesn't pay overtime. Fails to provide certain tools or whatever for the job. Treats you unfairly maybe because of your Christianity. Hassles you for having, because you want Sunday morning off to go to church or whatever. Does any of that sound familiar? It's hard to be submissive to an employer like that. When you are dealing with a harsh employer and you are mindful of God in the midst of that and say, God, I'm going to serve you. In this place, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm not happy. I don't like this, but God, I am choosing to serve you. God says that he will extend to you grace. That God sees that as a gracious thing and he will help you. Now, if you're putting up with such things and you're not mindful of God, you know, it's killer. In fact, you might want to kill. I've been in those thoughts <laughs> with an employer. Now, the key again is to think on Jesus as you go through such experiences and God will give you grace. He will. He'll help you. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be a punching bag. There's a difference between being a willing servant and being manipulated into slavery. And the idea of scripture is that we're always called to offer ourselves willingly in servanthood. Being manipulated, that's not servanthood. That's just being forced into slavery. We're called to be Willing servants, submissive. I like, I like that Peter says, if you've done wrong and, you pun and you're punished for it, well, then you're getting what you deserve. <laughs> Nothing more than what you deserve. But if you're punished for doing good, then leave it in God's hands and he will graciously help you. And then he gives this great uh, few verses to remind us to consider for a moment the, the example of Jesus Christ. Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Isn't that incredible? Like I, I just thinking upon this this week, uh, it just struck me in a fresh way, you know, how Jesus suffered. Sometimes I just put suffering for Jesus in the context of the cross. And people called him a liar. But there was no deceit in him. They reviled and he never threatened back. No deceit was found in his mouth. He entrusted himself to God. But I just think, man, what's suffering? Have you ever been called a liar when you were not lying? This is a terrible thing to go through. But Jesus did this for us. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live for righteousness. This is what Peter's calling us to, to live for righteousness. And in living for righteousness and putting aside sin, it happens as we're mindful of Christ and act in submission in these areas that we're called to. Uh, you, you read this and it sounds just like, I, you know that Peter didn't have the New Testament scriptures. He was writing them, part of writing them. He only had the Old Testament and you can just see that he was studying Isaiah 53 as he was teaching this. Let me read to you Isaiah 53, just part of it. Verse four to seven, you, you can just put these two sections of scripture right over top of one another. It's like a carbon copy. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 7. If you want, you can turn there in your Bible. So you hit it, it's about in the middle of your Bible almost. Isaiah 53. A prophecy 700 years before the time of Christ. It says this. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, you have been healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, he was submitted to the fashioning of God's hands. The chief cornerstone. Submitted to the work that God was accomplishing in him. He opened not his mouth and he partnered with God and said, I'll do it, Lord. Look at verse 25 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Last verse. He says this. For you were like strange sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Do you remember earlier in this passage, we read that there is something that is waging war against your soul? Seeking to destroy you? Your flesh. The work of sin. But Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our soul. He, he leads us beside still waters. To green pastures. You know, thank God for the patience with which Jesus has operated with me, with you. You know, again, consider what it's like to have an unfair master, an unfair employer. You know, it's hard to bear up under that. But now, you know, for a moment, just for a moment, consider how you've acted towards Christ. He came for you. Chose you. Royal priesthood, a holy nation. The Son of God has come for our sake that he might shepherd and oversee our souls. And my flesh says, no, fight him. Resist him. He doesn't have your best intentions in mind. Put your own will and desire first. But here he is, day after day, waiting for us. Our shepherd and overseer gives us his spirit, feeds us with the milk of his word. He helps us to grow up. 
And so, you know, when we confess our sins, the scripture tells us he takes them away. Isn't that awesome? He takes away our sins and then he just, he comes with his rod and his staff and he directs us and we become his and there's comfort to our souls when we follow him. The shepherd and overseer of our souls. See, we're all like sheep. Every single one of us goes astray. The key is to turn back when the master comes looking. Let's pray this morning. I invite the worship team to come. We're going to celebrate communion. Let's bow our heads, though, as they come. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, Jesus. This morning, with gratitude in our hearts, Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we sang earlier. It's the wonderful cross. And we acknowledge, Lord, like sheep, we, we went astray. And we thank you, Lord, that you came looking for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you've chosen us. I thank you, Lord, that you've made us your special people. I thank you, Lord, that you are fashioning us and forming us and working us into that which you are building. A temple, not carved with human hands, but fashioned by God. And Lord, this morning, we just want to, in every way that we've been resisting you, just turn again afresh and, and new and say, oh, okay, Jesus, I, I remember I'm coming back to you. You have my best in mind. I trust you with my life. Jesus, we thank you that you're patient with us. I thank you, Jesus, that we can turn with our hearts towards you. I thank you, Jesus, that this morning we could celebrate the Lord's Supper, come to the table and drink from the cup, which represents your blood, and partake of the bread, which represents your body that was broken, and we, we can just point ourselves back at the cross and that which you accomplished. Lord, it, it's that place. It's at the place of meeting you at the cross where we became alive, truly alive by your spirit. And so, Lord, as we look backwards 2,000 years today and we reference the cross, 